Thank you, Scott. It's always so nice to hear different people in the community share their thoughts about Donna. And some of you know, some of you Twin City folks know that uh, once a month we give a, somebody gives a short Donna talk at the center. So if you've been around for a while and like to give a short talk like Scott did for three to five minutes at the center once a month, uh, once uh, at the end of the month, just let me know. It's always great to have other people do it on a Wednesday night or a Sunday or Buddhist studies program. So we're finishing up our reflecting on faith or maybe hopefully just beginning our reflecting on faith in our life and really seeing it as a powerful force. And again, like all of these beautiful qualities of mind that we've been reflecting on, it isn't something that we have to construct, it's more something we're uncovering, supporting the arising of faith skillfully. That way it doesn't have to ever feel artificial or forced, like we're concocting faith because we don't like the feeling of no faith or being caught alone without any support. So let's begin just with a reflection. I'll just ask a few questions and you can just let them roll through your mind. These are questions probably you've already played with, reflected on this weekend. But tonight, today, and then over time, what is it that you have placed your heart upon? What does your heart actually trust? When you bring what to mind, do you feel safe, feel at ease? What is it that we can bring to mind that causes the heart to feel safe and at ease? Reflecting back about what actually brought us to this practice, to the practice of mindfulness. Maybe that noticing or remembering that seed of faith or interest or inspiration. See if you can get yourself back there. And uh, what is it that sustains us during the hard times? Many people, of course, had certainly difficult moments, maybe difficult hours or days during the retreat. So what is it actually that sustained us through that difficult time, either on retreat or just through our life, different difficult times? What understanding, what refuge, What experience sustained us, protects us in the past?
other people, wise people, wise friends that we trust have some sense of the path or some sense of what is skillful for us. In other words, is there somebody whose advice we trust? We have a sense that they have our best interests in mind, and not only that, they actually know something about the way to happiness. And what sort of feelings do we have about our ability? Like if there is somebody's teaching or some way that we trust, what feelings do we have about our capacity to go that way or to follow that path? Let's also reflect about the times when maybe our faith was out of balance, too idealistic, too hopeful. It's like our, the strength of faith was more about our wanting it to be true than it actually being grounded in reality or actually useful. And also bring to mind opposite ends when you were quite cynical, kind of arrogantly believing that nobody knows the way, there is no way. It's all hogwash. Happiness is just something that randomly falls in our lap. Enjoy it while it lasts. It's not like we can escape the relevance of faith. I, I think I mentioned the first night, you know, not wanting to deal with faith is its own kind of belief system, you know. So we have to like so many things, we have to unpack it, be conscious of how faith is operating in our minds and become skillful about it. This is from Ajahn Jayasaro. He's one of the senior Western monks in the Ajahn Chah lineage, living in Thailand, wonderful teacher. He says, faith is what keeps us going through the difficult times. In spiritual life, our capacity to endure through the ups and downs, the dark nights and deserts, the sloths of despondency is dependent on our wanting to. And if we want to, it's because we believe it is worthwhile. <coughs> this is faith. And I like this. It's a very organic definition of faith. Our capacity to endure through the ups and downs, the dark nights, the deserts, the sloths of despondency 
is dependent on our wanting to. And if we want to, it's because we believe it to be worthwhile. This is faith. So surviving, making it through, continuing on, happens because we want to continue on. Some of you know Viktor Frankl, the psychotherapist um, and a Holocaust survivor. And he, uh, during the Holocaust, his experience of the Holocaust, really reflected deeply about you know, the meaning of life and that obviously despairing, terrible situation and about how we, where do we find meaning to continue on. Before the war, before World War II, and being in the concentration camps, he was a psychologist and, uh, and did a lot of suicide prevention work, I don't know, maybe in Vienna, somewhere in Germany, or uh, Austria. And, uh, and then he did that also in the camps. He, he worked with the other people in the concentration camp and help them deal with their despair and their wanting to kill themselves. And um, so obviously he, he thought a lot about this. Like, what is it that keeps people moving forward? And so this is what I meant before when we have to acknowledge that faith is very much a part of our life, a part of getting up in the morning, part of so much of what makes us what we are. This is uh, more from, there's a wonderful, probably a transcription of one of his, one of his Dharma talks that was in uh, the uh, Abhayagiri newsletter from the summer of 2000, if you want to look it up. Faith on the Quest is the title of this talk of his. <clears throat> he says, you know, in acknowledging that faith is something yeah, that we can't do without, and he says, Nobody can prove that there is such a thing as enlightenment. And so if we don't have faith that there is, our practice is unlikely to go very far. Faith clarifies the goal, focuses our efforts, and fills us with energy. Ultimately, it is wisdom rather than faith that moves mountains. But but it is faith that impels us to move them in the first place, and faith that sustains us through the inevitable frustrations that dog our efforts. And um, Tani Sarobiku has a a really important point he makes that uh, he says, with truths of the will, though, the truth won't happen without your faith in it. Like some truths only are revealed through our efforts. There's no other way to realize the truth. So unless you have faith, like this particular truth, you know, the truth and the nature of the mind, that the liberating nature of the mind, that truth isn't going to be revealed unless somebody uncovers it, somebody opens to it. So it takes uh, effort, you know, to follow this path. It's not going to arise ordinarily in life. It's just not going to show up someday. Nibbana on a platter. There it is. Oh, so this is how it is. 
And, you know, the Buddha big time emphasized effort. And it always is confusing because, you know, normally we find effort makes us tight. So we talk a lot about letting things be, trusting and awareness. But all of that takes effort. You know, it's the effort of redirecting the mind, the effort of not forgetting. And without this effort, it isn't revealed. So again, this quote from uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, with the truths of the will, though, the truth won't happen without your faith in it, often in the face of uncompromising odds. And then a little bit more from Arjan Jayasaro. With the faith that the Buddha was fully enlightened and the trust that the teachings he shared for four to five years are true, it follows that each one of us, wherever we're from, wherever we were born, whatever language we speak, man, woman, old or young, we all bear within us this capacity to realize the truth. Human beings can attain awakening, can realize Nibbāna. We're fish in the water of truth. Why shouldn't fish be able to understand what water is? It's all around us. It's all within us. All we have to do is learn how to open our eyes. Think about faith, this uh, faith in a Buddhist sense, faith in the nature of the mind, the essentially free, open nature of the mind. Is it, uh, it allows for doubt and uncertainty. In fact, it allows for all things. This is why it's, uh, it's so energizing. You know, when our faith is in alignment with the Buddhist teachings, it's a faith that can include all things. It doesn't mean we allow the heart or mind to be swept away in anger, but it just means the faith that there's a faith. Initially, it's just, you know, an inspired faith. We don't really have it in our bones. But, you know, just from the level of hearing the teachings, we're told that everything is happening due to causes and conditions. So it's not a practice of rejecting, it's a practice of understanding. And that in itself is a relief. I remember when I first heard about the teachings, it was such a relief, this teaching, that, that it's all about understanding. I was so much in the mode of, you know, feeling something was wrong with the world or something was wrong with me. You know, that radical surgery was necessary either to me or to the world or both. There's that great um, quote when someone was interviewing Mother Teresa about prayer. Many of you have heard this before. And uh, she so she was asked about, you know, how she prays and and what she says when she prays, and she responded, well, I don't say anything, I just listen to God. And then a journalist asked, well, what does God say to you? And she said to him, well, he doesn't say anything either, he just listens. <laughs> and she followed up, 
you know, very quickly with, if you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm sorry, because I don't think I can explain it anymore. And it's just interesting, you know, here somebody often considered to be a real saint, but it isn't like she had the experience of God telling her what to do, you know, go to Calcutta, serve the poorest of the poor. I mean, she had that, obviously, that intuition. So there's, you know, the faith is actually what allows us to operate with uncertainty, without directions in life. It's like the willingness to go forward, even though maybe now we know we can't figure it out, or not only we can't figure out, but maybe fundamentally there aren't right or wrong ways even. You know, we can go this way, and we can either make that choice of going this way into hell or into heaven. You know, it's just a matter of how we learn from having made that choice. We could go another way, and we could make that hell or heaven too. So that's really disconcerting for us. You know, we want that certainty. So this is really the place for faith. You know, it really creates space for the limitations of a being a human being. We are limited as human beings. Our perspective is limited. Our understanding is limited. And faith allows us to be comfortable in this imperfect, limited existence. This is uh, from Joseph Goldstein's book that I read from last night, One Dharma. He's talking about doubt, still in the chapter on the awakening of faith. He says, For faith to be grounded in the reality of our experience, it must also be open enough to include what the Buddhist scholar, writer, and teacher Stephen Batchelor calls the faith to doubt. If we use faith to push doubt aside, we construct a defensive wall to keep out any unsettling questions, to keep from having to acknowledge our own fears and uncertainties. The inclusiveness of faith lets us be with whatever arises, investigating the very nature of doubt itself and whatever other difficulties arise. By embracing doubt skillfully, we strengthen faith. Faith. So instead of thinking about faith removing uncertainty, which is maybe in some ways a more common definition of faith, like we have faith, so now we don't have any doubts. But, you know, maybe that's true for the arahats among us, <laughs> you know, the fully realized people, or the fully deluded people. <laughs> they say that sometimes it's really difficult to tell the two apart. <laughs> maybe because of their certainty, you know. But in any case, for the vast majority of us, uh, it's faith that allows us to be at ease with uncertainty. So let's, uh, let's take some time and reflect on faith. And, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, you might have heard this, there's, you know, how this tradition, the Buddha liked to categorize things. So he talks about three types of faith, inspired faith, verified faith, and realized faith. 
And so inspired faith is based on just seeing or hearing or even thinking about things. We can inspire ourselves. And the classic example from the Buddhist tradition is the four divine messengers from the story of the Buddha's early life. He was an adult and uh, been very secluded in his upbringing, supposedly because his father was told at his birth by some astrologist, astrologer that he would either become a renunciate and a fully enlightened Buddha, or he would become uh, a king of the four directions and rule justly and wisely and with great power. And of course, his father, who was a king of a small little fiefdom, wanted him to be a king. So he kept the Buddha secluded so he wouldn't see things about the nature of the world, like aging, sickness, and death. And uh, But later, when the Buddha was a young adult, he had his charioteer drive him around. And in four successive days, it said, you know, that he saw uh, an old person and had to ask his charioteer, what was that? And then the next day, he saw a sick person, the next day a dead person, and then the fourth day a renunciate, somebody, a monk or a nun, or somebody who had left behind worldly possessions, was wandering in search of spiritual truths. So here, you know, this is inspiring faith. The Buddha doesn't really know what's going on, but he sees things that are inspiring, like seeing a sick person rocks his world a little bit. Oh, hadn't occurred to me that I'm going to get sick, that everybody I care about is going to get sick, get old, die. Hadn't occurred to me that people would actually leave behind a world of sense pleasure in order to support their investigation into spiritual truth. So when we hear about something or read something or think about something, it can it can really inspire us like a call to destiny or sort of another possibility. And then there's the famous line, you know, after, shortly after this, the Buddha, uh, now he's recalling it many years later, he said, before my enlightenment, while I was still an unenlightened bodhisattva, I too myself, being subject to birth, saw it, which was also subject to birth, being myself subject to aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement, I saw it, what was also subject to those things. Right? Because that's the truth of sense pleasures. They come and go. So he's sort of owing, owning, yeah, that's, that's where I was at. I, being an impermanent being, was content with things that were also impermanent. How silly of me that I had sort of put all of my happiness in this basket pursuing sense pleasures, really nice sense pleasures. And, you know, mythologically, or as the legend goes, the Buddha had it really well, really nice. He had the palace for the summer and the palace for the winter and, you know, everything he could want. And so it occurred to him, suppose that being myself subject to birth, aging, sickness and death, sorrow, defilement, having understood the danger and what is subject to birth, aging, sickness and death, I seek the unborn, unailing, deathless, sorrowless and undefiled, supreme security from bondage. Nibbana. So here, now the Buddha is talking about a time before he had any understanding. But it just occurred to him, you know, through his own thought, through his own seeing, like, hmm, this doesn't make sense. Maybe there's something else. 
and that's inspiring. You know, you know how it is. This is this happens to ordinary folks. We're living, working a dead end job, and one day, you know, we pick our head up from the computer screen, and we look around, and we have a sense: Is this what I want to be doing in thirty years? Or maybe in a relationship. Is this a person I want to be with, I should be with for the rest of my life? Are these the group of friends I should be hanging out with? And we go, maybe there's a different way. Maybe there's another possibility. Maybe I'm not destined just to do this. Another example from the Buddhist tradition is King Ashoka, who evidently he was a young boy at the time of the Buddha, who... uh, Forget what he did. He he like laid. Oh, he did something. He either fed the Buddha or put his coat down in some mud so the Buddha wouldn't have to step in it. But anyway, at that time he had an aspiration in his mind. You know, by this good act, may I become a a powerful king, a noble king. So hundred years later, as the story goes, at least he was reborn, became this very powerful king that evidently is true now because they found, archaeologically, they found some evidence for King Ashoka. For many years, up until just the last couple hundred years, people in India just assumed it was a legend, like there was no historical fact. But then later, uh, I think in the 1900s, or possibly the late 1800s, they started to uncover these pillars from the time of Ashoka. And these were part of the legends, these pillars that had these beautiful uh, sayings, both from the Buddhist teachings, but also his own instructions to build hospitals, not only for the people, but for the animals, the sick animals, to respect other faiths. Uh, but anyway, initially in his early life, he was a brutal <coughs> king and conquering all the lands in, in, in the area of India and, uh, you know, just massive armies, the whole... Thing we expect from conquering kings. And um, there he was, this is 400 years or so after the time of the Buddha, so the Buddha Sangha was well established in parts of India at that time. And uh, after a particularly harsh battle, he observed a monk walking through the battlefield. So just the vision of a renunciate and somebody walking calmly and coolly through this mass destruction, death, and the contrast of the evenness and peacefulness of this monk's mind and the greed and fear and destruction of the battlefield uh, inspired him. So he found that monk, talked to the monk, and uh, became a follower of Buddhist teachings. And a lot happened from that. In fact, the lineage of Buddhism that we follow... Uh, you know, again, this is much of legend, but the daughter and son of King Ashoka ordained, became a monk and a nun, and they went to Sri Lanka and brought a lot of the teachings. And as you know, later in India, Buddhism was wiped out, but those teachings that went to Sri Lanka stayed there as a protected place, being an island for many hundreds of years, and eventually spread from there to other parts of Asia. Um... So, just an interesting side story. And I can think about even my own sort of inspired moments of inspired faith. And some of you have heard the story of 
being an 11th grader in high school and being um, a serious uh, athlete, runner in cross country and track and getting injured and just rocked my world in a way and made me more reflective than I had been. And, and just seeing my own desire to compete and to be better and beat people and, uh, and then just expanding my vision and seeing how that same pattern of behavior acts, it's acted, was acting itself out in terms of academics and in terms of social relationships and, and then wider and wider and, and just seeing that there really wasn't an end to that and really being inspired. In this case, not so much inspired, I didn't know what to do, but I was inspired not to do that anymore, not to blindly want to be better. It's just I lost that fire of blind achievement there in 11th grade. <laughs> I wish I had lost it a little later. <laughs> it took me a long time. It took me many years before I found uh, proper motivation to work hard because I had to, I had to spend a lot of time just sort of... Uh, being rebellious against this sort of blind drive to do because you're told to do, because you're told to achieve, because that's what everybody else is doing. And another example from the Buddhist tradition that's used a lot is, you know, sometimes the Buddha's seen as a shepherd or a cow herder. And uh, the image of cattle crossing a river, you know, and the bigger cows and uh, steers, they get across, no problem, and then the younger ones, maybe a little coaxing, and then the little newborn calves, they don't want to cross, and the image of, you know, hearing the mother cow, mother cow sort of, what's that, lowing or calling to them, you know, you can do it, come on, we're going to go, <laughs> it's now or never, <laughs> and just being inspired to try it ourselves. You know, and I, I felt this, I'm sure many of you have felt this, reading books, well-written books about the Dharma, and just feeling this wave of energy. Well, maybe, maybe this is possible. Maybe like Ajahn Jayasaro says, we're all swimming in this water of Nibbana. We just need eyes to see, like that quote I read the first night, the gates to the deathless are wide open for those with faith. This is from the Buddha. So that's inspired faith, and then with that energy of inspiration, we seek to verify what we're inspired by. We think about it, we reflect on it, and we start using our direct experience. And there's an example that Joseph Goldstein gives in his book about uh, um, being on a particularly miserable retreat in um, Nepal, with one of his main teachers, Ajahn, uh, with Saida Upandita. And uh, the difficulty was mostly because of the conditions of the retreat center. It was a monastery and uh, just really primitive, simple. And it's just really uncomfortable, physically uncomfortable. And you know how that is, to have to be mindful when everywhere you look, it's just more discomfort. You know? The weather is uncomfortable. The seat is uncomfortable. The food is unpleasant everything. And pretty soon the people you're around are unpleasant. (laughs) 
even the teacher starts to seem unpleasant. So he goes to see Saida, there's like daily interviews in this style of practice, or almost every day, and he explains to the Saida how difficult it's been, and Saida Upandita says, be more mindful. (laughs) And you can imagine Joseph rolling his eyes, well that's a big help, he says, but he decided he'd try his following his advice. And this is where, you know, faith becomes verified. Okay, well maybe, you know, as much as it seems ridiculous, as much as it seems he's just parroting the instructions that I've heard a hundred times, thousands of times, I'll just do it. I remember when I was practicing in Burma, there was a, a young monk from Bangladesh who was at the monastery in Burma where I was practicing. And and uh, he was a young guy and he had left Bangladesh because... He really wanted to be a monk, but he had um, gotten really attracted to a young woman. So he thought, I better get out of here. So he you know, went over to Burma and was practicing. And then lo and behold, of course, uh, another young woman arrives, just the kind of woman he'd be attracted to. Maybe even looked like that other woman, I, I can't remember anyway. And so he goes to Saida, a different Saida in Burma and, and says, um, you know, I'm suffering, you know, I've got these very strong desires. And again, he got that same instructions. You're only suffering because you're not being mindful. (laughs) And he had that same sort of roll of the eyes. I don't know if he followed the instructions like Joseph did, but, you know, it worked, basically. When we're mindful, the mind, there's no room in the mind to be complaining, to be constructing the, the somebody who hates being in the situation that one is in. <clears throat> and Joseph says, <clears throat> often the simplest instruction points to a central undertaking of how the mind works. And when you read the discourses of the Buddha, <clears throat> you see so many examples where the Buddha, maybe because he's psychic or just a really good teacher, he knows just what to say to the person to help them see what they're not seeing. And lo and behold, they have direct experience, this verified faith. So not only are they inspired by the teachings, they have a sense directly how they work, that they work. And there's a sort of stock phrase you see at the end of many of the discourses where the people, whoever heard the talk from the Buddha, would say, Magnificent Master Gotama, Master Gotama has made the Dhamma clear in many ways, as though he were turning upright what had been overthrown, revealing what was hidden, showing the way to one who was, who was lost, or holding up a lamp in the dark for those with eyesight to see. So we have the inspiration and we saw, we've seen something. We're not completely blind. <clears throat> I remember a powerful moment of verified faith for me. I think I mentioned maybe last night about uh, this reflection on death right when I got started 30 years ago after reading the book by Ramana Maharshi. And then several months later, I was uh, had spent most of the summer backpacking in Alaska and uh, in the West Coast. And I was by myself backpacking in Idaho in the Sawtooth Mountains and uh, so since that 
experience in May, then I had been pretty practicing and uh, getting up a head of steam with my practice, starting to actually read about, read meditation instructions, books like Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and I forget what else I read, I think a book by Trumpa Rinpoche and a couple other books on meditation. And I uh, started practicing on my own. And I remember distinctly, I can still remember the night, sitting, it was dark, in the mountains by myself, meditating. And then after meditating, just this very clear, deep uh, arising of verified faith, like, this really works. This is what my life will be about. And I had an understanding, you know, oh yeah, I'll, I'll get tripped up here and I'll get tripped up in this way, but I'll always come back to this because it works. Just, and it was, it's not like my practice was deep, but it was just that sense of turning the mind back in on itself, investigating the mind directly, just saw how effective a method it was, how powerful a method it was to do that with our mind. Like I read last night, that quote from the Buddha, Island unto yourself, where we have this direct recognition that, oh, like some sense of the path, this is what it's about. So it's not unshakable faith, but the faith has some solidity because it's not just based on outside sources. We have some direct experience. And then the third kind of faith is what's called realized faith, like the Buddha under the Bodhi tree we talked about last night. Joseph Goldstein says, in terms of this realized faith, the deeper faith, he says, we experience the power of unshakable faith, verified not only by our hearts and intellects, but by the deepest levels of intuitive wisdom. This deep level of faith and trust is symbolized by a magical gem, which when dropped in water has the unique power to cause all impurities to settle to the bottom, leaving the water clear and sparkling. Faith has this power in the mind. It settles doubt and agitation, creating a mental environment of inspiration, confidence, and purity. <clears throat> and maybe, if not yet, someday, will have some experience of this deeper kind of faith where the, the sort of response of the heart is a kind of a profound sense that it's okay, it's always been okay, it will always be okay. So even though we're aware of struggling, you know, our own struggling, other people struggling, but there's this pervasive background that it's okay, it's all okay. Not to dismiss suffering or dismiss life as it is in this sort of conventional sense, but to add this other piece, this profound peace, knowing that it's okay. It's okay that life is like this. It's okay that the personality is like this. It's okay that my sit is bad like this. It's okay that I didn't start my practice until I was... No, you just fill in the date.
we even get that deeper realized faith in little, little bits. Each time there's a big drama going in our mind, going on in our mind, and then a moment of mindfulness, and that whole facade, that whole drama pops. Just like falls away. Each time we have that, it's like whatever drama is going to come up next in our life, it becomes a little bit more transparent, a little po more porous. It's just not as believable if we've popped enough dramas. doesn't mean that dramas won't come, but they don't have, they don't pack the punch that they used to pack. So, <clears throat> like uh, in so many places in the Buddhist teachings, you know, he's always... Uh, needs to explain this engine of awakening. And so uh, many of you know that there's dependent origination. This is one of the real profound gems of the Buddhist teaching where he explains how it is that suffering arises when there's nobody who suffers. So he had to describe this interdependent process that is the experience of suffering. And then he had to describe how with this interdependent process that has a tendency to repeat itself, cycles of suffering, samsara, how then does awakening happen? And it's interesting. What is the cause for faith? Well, faith can only be, be, be born in the cycle of dependent origination, which is cycles of suffering and samsara, right? Faith is born in samsara. So the Buddha teaches that suffering is either the cause for more suffering <coughs> or it's the cause for faith, for search. And he has another teaching in parallel with dependent origination, which is sometimes called tran transcendent origination. And Joseph quotes this passage from the Connected Discourses here in his book. Just as practitioners, when rain pours down in thick droplets on a mountaintop, the water flows down along the slope and fills the cleft, gullies, and creeks. These being full, fills up the pools. These being full, fills up the lakes. These being full, fills up the streams. These being full, fills up the rivers. These being full, fills up the great oceans. So too, with suffering as approximate cause, faith comes to be. With faith as approximate cause, gladness, right? That, that joy of inspiration. With gladness as approximate cause, rapture. With rapture as approximate cause, tranquility. With tranquility as approximate cause, happiness. Now, this may seem a little too stock, like, well, yeah, that, that would be nice. <laughs> but you'll see, if we really tune into inspiration and, and sort of cultivate, like be mindful of the joy, the movement of inspiration, all of the other things the mind is doing that's agitating, that will fall away. Because this is interesting. Being inspired is interesting. It captivates the mind. The mind unifies in that joy 
and it stops doing all the other things, thinking about this, worrying about that. It gets focused, and tranquility comes from that. From tranquility, happiness. From happiness, concentration. From concentration, the knowledge and vision of things as they really are, with dispassion as approximate cause, liberation. reason why doubt is considered so toxic um, is that it, it's paralyzing. You know, we're deciding what we should do. Should I do this or should I do that? That we don't do anything. And when we're not doing anything, when we're just thinking about what we should do, when we're not doing anything, there's no learning. The only way we learn is through the movement of intention and then observing the consequences of that. The whole path that the Buddha taught, it's like what's getting purified is this intention machine. You know, we're an intention machine or an intending machine. We keep intending. We've got these dispositions that arise, these impulses to do, to think, to speak, to act. And when we add mindfulness, then we start to understand in terms of cause and effect. But when we're stuck in doubt, paralyzed by doubt, we're not acting on anything, or we're acting on doubt. But it's a, it's a way of being stuck. There's really no learning. And the more that we do realize, like even if we are mindful enough to see that doubt isn't working, then that just leads to more doubt. Like, oh, you know... I have to think, I've got to figure out what to do because it's not working. Just being in doubt isn't working. I really got to figure it out. Now, it's really important to figure out what to do. Being at a crossroads where we don't know which way to go. I mean, this sounds really familiar to us because we spend, we trust this doubt. It masquerades as wisdom in a way. Like, oh, I'm being thoughtful. I want to be careful. Somewhere in this chapter, I think Joseph quotes that famous quote from Goethe, where he says something like, boldness has genius. You know, that there's something useful about going out and learning. And one story that one of my early teachers, Swami Satchidananda, used to say, he gave a talk once with Buckminster Fuller, who some of you might remember was an inventor, and I think he first designed the geodesic dome back in the 50s. But anyway, later... Uh, 70s probably, he gave a talk and he was sort of talking about the mind and Buckminster Fuller spoke second after him and uh, said something, I think you should go out and make as many mistakes as you can. <laughs> and the idea being that if you make mistakes and you're aware, you'll learn a lot. Or just doing, just acting. It's a great line from one of Joseph's Dharma talks. 
he gave a series of talks on the Satipatthana Sutta and that we've been listening to at Mark and Jan Young's house. And one of those talks, Joseph quotes somebody who says, to, Jew, to choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. <laughs> and you know, it, like any pattern, if we practice it, it becomes more and more our tendency. So if we practice doubt, we're more likely to be doubtful, choosing immobility as our way of getting around. So just some flavors of doubt that we're familiar with. Doubt about ourselves, doubt about the instructions, doubt about the efficacy of our practice, like whether we're doing a good job, doubt about you know, whether this teacher or this practice is appropriate, and even doubt about life, you know, is it worth it? So we have so many different doubts. And the question is, what is, what is, our, uh, what is our mode of relating to doubt? And this is where it's useful to have memorized, remember we have to re-inspire ourselves. So one of the reasons memorization or to be able to recall inspired teachings, to have them at our fingertips is really important. You know, I bet there's a good portion of the people in this room who have Dharma talks in the car or Dharma talks on their iPad or on the computer at the ready, you know, or they have the Dharma seed bookmarked or something like that, or have their books with lots of little stickers, you know, that show them where to go when they need some inspiration. Or some people just practice opening books and assume that it will be useful. So we need to be able to access the teachings. And even in the, in the tradition, you know, when the Buddha talks about ways to overcome doubt, it's basically bringing wise attention to inspiring things or to cease bringing wrong attention to things that cause doubt. The other part of uh, supporting faith in the experience of doubt is uh, <clears throat> creating the container you know, like, uh, who are we surrounding ourselves with? It really matters, the kind of conversations we have, the kind of people we're around. Because it's very easy to create doubt in our minds as a, you know, I put myself in this boat, you know, we're all relatively beginners. Relatively speaking, we're beginners. And uh, it's easy to have, to have doubt get triggered by people around us. Not that we have to be afraid of, you know, the ignorant masses out there. It's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> but some people like have an experience in their meditation or they're really inspired and they that that inspiration sort of fills them and then they go out in the world yeah. and they sort of see these blank faces. Like, what are you, weird? <laughs> or, you know, just some kind of, some expression of disbelief. So we want to we wanna protect our inspiration. 
Think about who we're sharing our practice with, how we're sharing it. And when we do get challenged, like I, I mentioned uh, a while back, you know, who are we to have so much confidence that, you know, like we have confidence in our limitations. Where does that confidence come from? We're so certain that we're screwed. We're so certain that this heart is limited, this mind is limited. We have to see that that's its own kind of faith, you know, based on who knows what, some cynical notion or some idea of materialism. And at least, you know, maintain an open mind. Well, who knows? Let's see. And what's the harm in exploring the capacity of the heart for freedom, for wisdom and love? Like, what would be the downside of that? I want to end with just reading a little bit more from Ajahn Jayasaro. Some of you have read this because we used it this fall when we were doing the five faculties in the Buddhist studies, studying the five faculties, which includes faith. It's faith is the first of the five faculties, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. <clears throat> and I suggest that people read this. And he says, it's common among amongst Buddhist practitioners, however, to realize uh, that their profound trust and confidence in the truth of the Buddhist teachings is not matched by faith in their own capacity to realize that truth, right? And this probably is true for many of us, where they seem so reasonable, they're so beautiful, but we don't really believe he's talking about us. You know, other people may be, but not us. This lack of faith in our potential for enlightenment is crippling and unwise. The doubt is based on a mistaken way of looking at ourselves. Swallowing the myth of an independent eye gives us spiritual indigestion. We can't force ourselves to have faith, and we don't need to. We merely have to remove the wrong thinking that prevents faith from arising and start paying more attention to our experience. And then a little later he says, Our discouragement in the practice frequently comes from trying to imagine how this limited eye could possibly realize the unlimited? How could this bounded self realize the unbounded? Having posed a question based on a false premise that the I is real, we naturally conclude with a false answer that my realizing Nibbana can never happen. In other words, how could little old me ever realize something so marvelous the gap seems too wide? Well, that's exactly the point, isn't it? This person doesn't realize the truth. <clears throat> Rather, it's through understanding what this person is that the truth is revealed. This realization involves, in the words of the Buddha, upturning something that has been overturned. It is a shining of light in the darkness. Nothing new is created. What occurs is a radical reappreciation of experience and recognition of something that has always existed. The, the, the deathless element is also a birthless element. It is not something that has been brought into existence. Instead, those things which conceal or envelop it are removed. If we can grasp this point, then we can feel a new surge of energy. 
we can see that any sense of inadequacy we might feel is founded on attachment to the conventional self as being ultimately real. At this point, our effort and energy, our persistence in practice is greatly strengthened, and the nagging doubt about our capacity to follow the path to its end may even disappear in a flash. We start to give what it takes. And I really relate with that. And these are the regular insights of my practice now when <clears throat> there's some sense of limitation and then some realization that that sense of limitation doesn't involve me. So it's not denying that, that whatever I'm seeing is a limitation, but that that limitation doesn't refer back to anybody. And so whatever hole we get ourselves into isn't a problem if it's not referring back to a somebody. That's the liberation that the Buddha is pointing to. Let's just sit for a few seconds, let go of the words. Thanks for listening, everyone. So we have a slightly shortened... Why don't we um, start the meditation at 5 after 9, if that's okay? And so who's ever doing the bell, just ring it five minutes later. <clears throat>